My name's Paul Hecker. I'm grateful and humble to admit I'm a real alcoholic. Thanks for inviting me to share tonight. My sponsor showed up, so I got to change my whole goddamn story. <laughs> and a good reinforcement, Brad, some good friends from over east of here. Uh, there's something I always like to share, especially with the groups that I am either a home group member of or, you know, I cherish as part of my recovery. I like our responsibility slogan in AA. And this has significant meaning for me early in my sobriety. It says, I am responsible when anyone anywhere reaches out for help. I want the hand of AA always to be there. And for that, I am responsible. So I'm going to leave this here for this group. There's many, many groups around the country that have that. Some in color, some in an oval. This one happens to be a black and white, which is kind of cool. So tonight, hoofta. It should be the easiest thing in the world. I've been an alcoholic for a long time. Every time I get up in front of a crowd to speak, I definitely get nervous. <laughs> but aside from my morning prayers, uh, late today I only ask God for one thing. Let my voice help others. And that's the only purpose for me to be here tonight. If anything I share or... Uh, Express uh, has meaning for you, and it helps you stay sober another day. For that, I'm grateful. So, you know, I could sit here and talk my, about myself for an hour, but this big book has given me some suggestions where I usually come prepared with a topic. So as I went to my meetings this week, I listened to you folks, and I try to get a message and there was a few things that I had heard Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and then even when we get here before the meeting, people talk and converse, and a lot of times it's about recovery. So I don't, tonight it, it was pretty brief. You know, sometimes I start with a page that looks like this. There's hardly nothing on it. For this group in this meeting, I started with two words at the top, and then I added three more words. And the three words I'm going to reflect on first are words we hear by almost every speaker. I want to share my experience, strength, and hope. So in this particular day, I thought, I wonder if I know what the word experience really means. So I looked it up in Webster's Dictionary. And I also carry the AA Dictionary and the 12 and 12 Dictionary. But experience tells me it's doing things and seeing things and having things happen to me. So I have experiences that I can share tonight with you about alcohol. I also have the experience of what this program has done to change my life. Another word I liked was strength. I really like the definition from Webster. It says, ability to resist being moved or broken by a force. Think about that. If I find the strength in Alcoholics Anonymous not to be broken by that force and that obsession to drink, it's a miracle. 
Strength is also the quality that allows someone to deal with problems in a determined and effective way. This program gave me strength so that I could embark on the things that were going to become necessary to live one day at a time and not take that first drink. And then there's the word hope. Hope has a definition that's a verb, and it also has a definition that's a noun. So as a verb, that's an action. Trust is a word in the definition of hope. Desire with an expectation of fulfillment. Okay, that's a verb. It also uses the word await. If I have hope, I can sit here and just wait. That's an action I'm taking. I'm waiting for the gifts of this program to really happen. As a noun, the word hope says it's belief in a fulfillment, something desired, and reliance. So tonight, I'm standing here in front of you with both, with all three of these, experience, strength, and hope. So the two words I started this whole day with, and these come out of the big book on a variety of pages, one of the words is beliefs, and the other word is actions. So I thought about my alcoholism. I thought about what it was like while I was drinking. And the first thing I looked at was actions. The big book has a couple areas that describe actions. One of the areas talks about the action of alcohol and the doctor's opinion. It tells us what the action of alcohol does to the mind, how it creates the obsession and the phenomena of craving. Alcohol took action on my, my, my whole being so that I couldn't control whether or not I chose to drink. I had no choice. So throughout the big book, as I looked at action, it tells me very often that there's work to do. (laughs) And as you go through the steps in the big book, I can't remember how many pages it refers to more action. More action is required. You get through that fourth step and the fifth step, you must take this action now or you will not succeed. It tells us we will be a failure if we don't take action. You know, so those are some big, those are some pretty big items to consider for two really simple words. And you know, when I looked at what my beliefs were while I was drinking, the big book tells us that we have a perception and a conception of spirituality that we learn as children. Some of us do, some of us don't. We know this, uh, the makeup of our fellowship is uh, agnostic, atheist. In my case, I was a believer, then a non-believer. So as I looked at what my beliefs were, they were very misconstrued as to reality. had an awful lot to do with my self-centered nature. (laughs) Uh, I believed I deserved things, which I didn't. I hadn't worked for a damn thing. Why did I deserve anything? You know, I thought I could embark on a career, go into school, get educated, but I couldn't make it to class. 
It was too important to go down to gold finds in Mankato, Minnesota and buy two cases of beer for five bucks, long neck brown bottles, you know. And that was a while ago when I went to, when I tried to go, well, my story, I'll get into my story a little bit as I was younger. But uh, I had expectations that were unrealistic. And I had people point those out to me at a very young age. I didn't believe it. I have a brother who's a retired minister. One of the things he says, he goes, Paul, you really have unrealistic expectations. And he was talking about what I expected you all to do, not me. I had this belief that you needed to do things my way or it was the highway. You know, that, all this crazy stuff I used to think. Uh, so I'm just a poor old farm boy from Minnesota. Uh, my family in southwest Minnesota, we, we uh, my dad, my uncles, my aunt, everybody was a farmer. So I grew up in a very poor, kind of a, I guess you'd call it pretty damn remote part of Minnesota. Uh, no cities. I wasn't anywhere as close to like the Twin Cities or some of the larger metro areas. So... Uh, you know, we had to, we basically had to create our own fun on the farm. And we did. We did everything from hang chickens to, uh, you know, we, we went out and smoked corn silk, you know, the, the stuff on the end of the corn cob. We just did everything that would allow us to kind of create some uh, adventure and excitement. Always looking for excitement. So as a youngster, my mom used to uh, bottle chokecherry wine. We had a dirt cellar, just a small something down under the house, where I followed in the footsteps of my older brothers and sister. So I'm the youngest of five. So as they were doing what they were doing to keep me quiet, and I didn't squeal on them, I had to do what they did. So consequently, at four, five, and six years old, I'm going down to the fruit cellar with my older brothers, and we're having a little poke off uh, mom's chokecherry wine. Shortly after, I was kind of the, I guess I was dad's kind of favorite little little honky that hung, uh, you know, I kind of hung on his heels. He'd let me run down and get his white label beer. Uh, I'd learned how to open the top of the bottle and he'd let me have those first couple swigs. Mm -hmm. So really that's how I got introduced to alcohol. Totally harmless. You know, there was... I don't even recall that there was any feeling from it. But then my folks took us off the farm and we moved into town. That was a big adjustment. Me, my older brothers, we all revolted, rebelled. We were mad. We were pissed off. So by the time I'm in fourth grade, I find Seagram 7 in a bottle. And I get a taste of that. And as a youngster, I'm off to the races doing alcohol as fast and as often as I can. By the time I'm in sixth grade, I had already been uh, threatened with some of the juvenile detention consequences because I was already robbing grocery stores just to get cigarettes. They didn't have booze in the grocery stores back then, or I'd have really found a way in. But anyway, you know, I had these, uh, I had these very, very on natural, not normal tendencies as a young person, which I've since learned in Alcoholics Anonymous that I probably had alcoholic tendencies from, you know, almost from birth. 
I drank enough to finally cross the line, that's for sure. So I was able to uh, overcome a lot of those childhood delinquent type activities and uh, I was able to get through a, a good high school career. I did get busted in high school for beer and got kicked off the football team and stuff like that, but shit, big deal, huh? So while three of us got caught drinking beer in junior, as juniors in high school, while the rest of the football team's playing football and we're you know, on the sidelines for a month, we drank more beer than ever every Friday night at the football game. We just couldn't play. But we all got our uh, eligibility back and you know, I kind of I kind of skated through the next couple of years until, like I say, I got to that college adventure, and for me, it only lasted about a year. Um, I just I just had way too much fun to get involved with. Uh, back in the early '70s, there were some other substances that we're all familiar with that we either tried or got addicted to, or you know, they just became a part of normal living along with my drinking. So, you know, I, I ended up with a really nice family, um, got married, had daughters, had four granddaughters. But as I was bringing those children up, you know, I always thought that my spouse was to be my drinking buddy. And for a long time, that's what we were. You know, we kind of, I met my spouse over a six-pack of Michelob. Imagine that. I guess I, that's, that's how I would say I woo wooed her into my web. You know, innocent, next door neighbor. I married the girl next door. And, you know, the thing that brought us together was the fact we were both godparents to her brother's daughters. So, needless to say, and we all talk about some of the relationships that we either destroy, you know, for a time it was fantastic. Uh, some of the most beautiful children I could have ever been blessed with. They love me today. Wasn't that way always. You know, I had kids that ran from me for a while. But the good news is, I realized finally that I had a sickness. So one of my over-the-road experiences was I had lost my license. Couldn't, I was no longer insurable by my employer. And I had to sit on the couch and do nothing. And it's the craziest thing I ever did. I learned how to solve the Rubik's Cube in about 27 seconds. That's what I did for a month. Because I basically thought I was unemployable. The funny part was somebody said, you know, maybe, Paul, you should go to an AA meeting at the local library. And I told it, tell it every time I speak, I smoked a joint and went to my first AA meeting. <laughs> there I learned we don't do anything. I'm like, holy shit. Because there was a couple coke addicts there when I went to my first meeting. And that was in, I think if I remember right, I think 80, 82 or 83. 1982 or 83. So to put the chronological order together, my first AA meeting was long, long, long before I got sober. You know, I stayed dry for three years that first time I went to an AA meeting. I had some old timers I kind of looked up to. One was a local department store owner. There was an attorney that was in AA, and I thought these gentlemen really had it. I thought they had it made, and they did. They were successful big businessmen. Everybody in town knew them, and they were not afraid to go to the library to a meeting every Tuesday night. Didn't bother them a bit. Me? 
There was a time I didn't have a license. I'd ride my bicycle up there and I'd park in the back. I would hide. Nobody, I didn't want anybody to know. I was going to AA meetings. But you know, that's when the seed was planted. We talk about how once you come to AA, I guarantee you it will screw up your drinking. (laughs) And man, did it screw up mine. So after staying dry for about three years, I got those chips. I remember those chips had the two AA symbols on the back side of the coin. That kind of puts them in perspective as to how old they are. Because they took them off sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, whatever it was. So I, I collected a few chips, stopped going to meetings, and decided I could drink. The big book tells us uh, there's a couple areas in the big book I just love. It says, uh, in the doctor's opinion, that the action of alcohol on chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. Well, in my early days in AA, my first go-arounds, I didn't know that. I didn't learn that. I didn't hear that. But today I can point to it so that if I get a chance to help others, well, there's a part of the big book that explains what the hell's wrong with us. I'm like, wow, it's a miracle. Getting back to the action, it says in the big book, There was a practical program of action. You told me the result was evident. It worked. I'm like, think about that. I I didn't think this program was going to work for me, especially when I tried and failed. You know, the big book clearly tells us that there's things that we must do or we will fail. Well, I followed every one of those pages in the big book. I'm like... Well, I I never could really get through the middle steps very well, so I didn't do them. And I drank again. Imagine that. You know, there's there's a multitude of topics that we talk about every week in this program. And uh, I think some of the things that mean the most to me is when you all share your experience. And I I have occasionally had people talk to me and suggest, why don't you share your experience? You know, I can read out of the big book pretty well, because that's that's the blueprint for my sobriety. But there's more meaning to this program than the words of black and white. So let me tell you a little bit about the strength I have today. And the experience I had today. So after continuing drinking for a number of years, my sobriety date is December 7th of 2002. I never ever thought that Pearl Harbor Day was going to have so much meaning to me. But now it's almost, you know, some, some friends in the groups, they kind of, they think of the explosion that took place. You know, it was uh, 80 years ago, roughly, whatever, 1941. And... Uh, Today, I remember Pearl Harbor Day every year. (laughs) It happens to be the day I took my last drink. And on the day I took my last drink, it wasn't like I had relapsed, gone out and had a few, and decided I better go back to AA. That's not how it worked for me. I was sitting on a golf course in 1980, or excuse me, 2002, a beautiful, sunny, you know, Southern Minnesota is beautiful in about August. I hadn't drank in about 
maybe six months, nine months. Things were good at home. Family was getting along with me. But I'm on the golf course, and I really know how much aiming fluid helps my game. So I decide I'm going to drink. So I drink on a golf course in August. Holy crap. I go on a binge, continuous daily drinking until Thanksgiving. My family all comes to the house for Thanksgiving, and that year in 2002 was probably towards the 26th, 7th, or 8th of November. My kids from Pennsylvania had come down. I had a daughter in Minneapolis. So the whole family's sitting there. Everybody has heard the story about Hecker drinking continuously for the past three or four months. And what the heck are we going to do about it? So my family sits me down. We have a family meeting. My, my own personal family, we really get a kick out of what we call a family meeting. So I'm sitting like almost in an electric chair, and they're all pointing at me going, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to stop drinking. Well, my spouse at the time, she says, I don't believe a word you're saying. I'm going to Pennsylvania with my oldest daughter, Deirdre. And she did. The kids all leave. All my daughters leave. I think at that time I had, I had one granddaughter, two granddaughters at that time. So everybody leaves and I'm all alone. I'm like, this is great. <laughs> I tell them I'm going to quit drinking and they're not here. What the hell are they going to know? So it, it only, it gets, as fast as this disease can overtake our mental state and our physical state, within eight days, on the last day that I took a drink on December 7th, which was about a week or so after, uh, actually about nine, eight, nine, ten days after Thanksgiving, I decided to start that particular day with a 12-pack and a bottle of Captain Morgan rum. That's how I started my day. As soon as the grocery store opened, I happened to be living in North Iowa, and grocery stores sold liquor. Damn, that was convenient. I, up to this point, I always hid my drinking. But with nobody around, man, I just cruised to the grocery store. I got a 12-pack and a bottle. And I decide, you know, my sister's counting on me. i got to go see my sister. But before I go see her, I'm going to take this uh, fireplace mantle. I'm going to finish it up, and I'm going to haul it down to my sister's. Take a road, make a road trip out of this beautiful Saturday. This happened to be on a Saturday. So I get this mantle, it's about eight feet long. At that time I had a couple of hot rod Lincoln Continentals and it just fit between the front windshield and the back rear window. And I got this mantle in here and by this time it's 2.30, 3.30 in the afternoon I'm out of booze. So what do I do? I go to the liquor store, buy another 12 pack and a bottle of Captain Morgan. I take off on this road trip, it's about 180 miles. I didn't make it. Didn't make it to my sister's house. I called them. My brother-in-law, I can clearly remember a few things about the conversation. One of the things he said, your brother must be drunk. Because <laughs> I was calling, asked for directions. I didn't know where I was. I was in a blackout. I was totally lost. So to make a long story short, on my last day of drinking, I'm somewhere near Iowa City. That's in the center part of Iowa. Interstate 80 runs through there. 
So I'm on this beautiful two-lane blacktop road. It's about 20 degrees. The stars are shining. It's crystal clear. Not a speck of moisture in the air. And all of a sudden, my Rod Lincoln decides to go somewhere off the road with me in it. So I go Baja and across the field. I go through fences. Uh, I did some other property damage. And my car comes to a stop right over in that part of the country. They have a lot of drainage ditches that are about 15 feet deep for when it rains. My car hits a barbed wire fence. I'm slowed down. Comes to a complete stop. Man will go through the front windshield. I'm like, oh shit, this is a mess. Next thing I know, there's lights everywhere on the highway. People are coming out and grabbing me. So my last drink was the county sheriffs, the deputies, trying to get me to do a sobriety test, which I couldn't stand up. Um, They took control of all my assets at the time, and they threw my butt in jail. I didn't cooperate on any level of anything they wanted me to do. I didn't take a blood test. I wouldn't take a breath test. I wouldn't do nothing. So they threw me in jail. They took and uh, impounded my car. They took care of all that. They, you know, you know, so my last drunk involved a hell of a lot of alcohol. And I had a little resentment. When I got out of jail the following day, they let me make my phone call. I called my sister. And my sister and brother-in-law got me out of jail. They took me to where the car was impounded. And God damn it, there was only like two beers left in the back seat. I'm like, those sons of bitches, those cops must have drank all my booze. So immediately I had a resentment. They took my booze. But it was still in the car, what was left. You know, so oddly enough, the car was drivable. And this is the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous. I stopped at my sister's long enough to peel the mantle out of the front windshield. We took it in my sister and brother-in-law's living room. I have beautiful pictures of that mantle today. A lot of family portraits were taken by that mantle, including me in them. And I tell my sister, i got to get the hell out of here. I'm a total mess. I feel bad. I look bad. I smell bad. There's just nothing good about me, so I leave. So I had a 180-mile drive back to my home, and this was a Sunday. It had only been 12 hours since I had a drink. This is kind of like the jumping-off point. Like, man, if you can only imagine how bad I felt. There was only one thing that was going to solve my problem. How about how bad I felt? I better stop and get a 12-pack. But I didn't. I got gas. I got back in the car. And because it was a fairly long drive and my eyes were not seeing straight, it took me a while. When I got back home, I happened to remember there was a meeting at the, in the basement of the Lutheran Church that night. And this is where my story is really the turning point. I didn't know what to do. I just felt so bad. So I go to this AA meeting, and there's two people there. And that's why I'm so near and dear to this fellowship. At my most needing moment of my life, there was two alcoholics having a meeting. It wasn't 20. There wasn't six. six it was two. Al Hogan and Don Ristow. 
So I walk in there, and I was greeted like they had known me my whole life. It just so happens Don did. Don had known me for 30 years. On the day I go to my first AA meeting sober, serious about this program, Don was there to greet me, who I had greeted him 17 years before that. I greeted Don Ristow at his first AA meeting 17 years prior. So Don took me under my wing, under his wing. I, didn't have, I couldn't drive for a couple years after that. So Don got me started going to meetings. Don got me started with this program because I was able to witness how it had worked for him. Unbelievable. It had worked for Don. Don was a guy. He was a construction guy, had his own business. He slept in his truck at least five nights a week. Always drank beer, warm out of a can, but he always slept in his truck. Even if he parked in his own driveway, he was still sleeping in his truck. Man, he was bad. But Don stayed sober. Don became a pillar within the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. He certainly became a pillar for me because he was there when I needed him. Al Hogan, he'd only had a couple years of recovery when I met Al. I still talk to Al today. So Don Ristow, I was able to go watch him get his uh, 27-year chip. So that was 10 years after he helped me. He died that following year with 28 years sober. So Don played an important role in my life. So I had this little gal named Sandy Jackson. Because I was a mess, I was now going to an AA meeting a week. I needed more than just an AA meeting. So I sought professional help. (laughs) We worked on what we called my tendency to relapse. Why do I relapse? I told Sandy everything about me. She said, you you don't have a problem with relapse. You're an alcoholic. So for about three months, I would go see Sandy once a week, tell her how I'm doing. And finally, I remember she took me to a couple AA functions with other alcoholics that she was professionally helping. Uh, Went to a Valentine's dance, a few things. She finally poked me in the chest as hard as she could, she could, because I was having a hard time getting this program, she said, you can change. She said, Paul, you can change. And she basically said that old cliche, you only have to change one thing, and that's everything. And no kidding, I changed everything. I moved the hell out of Iowa, I moved to Pennsylvania, I changed jobs, I changed careers, I changed everything. I left my family behind, I went talked to my family for months, because what happened to me was I decided to immerse myself in the program Alcoholics Anonymous until I got it. My goal was to get it. I wanted to get this more than anything in the world. Because I, you can imagine, from 1983, roughly February, my first meeting, till 2002, I didn't get it. I was drunk for damn near 20 years after my first AA meeting. I had a lot of periods of, of not drinking in that 20 years, but I was not a sober person any of those days in that period. I was either a dry drunk, a miserable drunk, or a drunk drunk. 
I was all of those things at various times. So I moved to Pennsylvania, no license. I rented a little place right across the street from what they call the Boho. That's the Bowmansville Tavern. So I got this little two, two-story house. My bedroom's on the second floor. And every night I went to bed, my first month there, the beer light's flashing at the boho. I'm like, fuck. So I moved to Pennsylvania in July. I'd gotten sober in December, so this is like seven months. And if you've ever experienced this, I had no car. I didn't know any people except the two people I worked for because I had changed careers. So I'm in a brand new place, no, no, no family, nobody around me, and I'm really desperate. So I called the Reading Hotline. They gave me a bunch of numbers. Uh, I called everybody I could. Nobody would come to Bowmansville and get me. Most people didn't even know where it was. Bowmansville, it's halfway between Reading and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. But it's in the middle of the hills. If you want to know right exactly where it's at, it's two miles from the Maple Grove Racetrack. NHRA Racing. John Force, all the big guys race there. They call it Reading Raceway. So anyway... My daughter, who lived about 60 miles away in Pennsylvania, I had convinced her that in the process of my move, I had a vehicle that was at their house. They knew I couldn't drive, so there was no reason for me to have a car. I convinced my daughter, bring that car out here because I'm going to find somebody to take me to an AA meeting. So I move out there, and I hadn't been to a meeting for a month. My, da- my daughter brought the car, sitting in my driveway. I round up my books, my maps. Everything with me, I throw them on the front seat and I hop in the car and I'm going to drive to a meeting. I'm scared. But I was willing to go to any length to get some help, which I knew AA was my solution. So I go around this windy road. I'm getting real close to the Reading racetrack. There's a cop sitting right at the stop sign. I'm like, Jesus, my heart just about flies out of my chest because I don't have a driver's license. The last thing I need while I'm already in the system, the legal process, is to get picked up for no damn driver's license in Pennsylvania. I slide by that cop. I get to my first AA meeting in Pennsylvania. Little gal, I ended up kind of telling my story at that first meeting, suggesting I need some help. I'm all alone in this little town. A gal named Leslie says, there's a guy over there you need to call. His name is Eli. That big old mitt of a hand in this picture, that's Eli's hand. I, I called Eli. Here again, I live in this little two-story house all by myself and the boho beer lights flashing. I'm calling Eli. Where do you live, Eli? We said, I'm right over here on this street. I can't remember the street now. I said, Eli, you're freaking three houses away from me. (laughs) Now, was God working in my life? Just the fact that I was willing to risk everything in a legal sense to go to an AA meeting, this higher power whom I hadn't found yet, put a gentleman named Eli three doors down from my house. Now, Eli, at the time, his sobriety date was January 6th of 1973, about Keith's time frame. Eli hadn't been going to meetings. He's 30 years sober at the time. 
He hasn't been going to meetings. I never saw somebody so happy to receive a phone call in his life from another drunk other than Eli. Eli, all of a sudden, he started speaking at meetings. He went to four meetings a week. And guess what? He took, with me with, he took me with him to every meeting. I'm like, man. You know, so shortly after Eli and I had become very good friends, so he was my sponsor for eight years until he died. Uh, he died December 23rd of 2012. 2011, I think, maybe. So the bottom line with Eli was, he was the guy that said, that son of a bitch right there, if he can get sober, so can I. I heard Eli say that meeting after meeting after meeting in his story. He was the first sober drunk that went to the Red House in Baltimore, Maryland. They opened this brand new facility. Eli was the very first person to call for help. Thinking back 1973, there wasn't a lot of treatment centers and things like that. So Eli met some people, and he would tell me his experience. There was a guy he despised in the AA meetings. Because early on, he didn't want this either. He just knew he couldn't stop drinking, and he was listening to people tell their story, not willing to get honest with himself, just like me. And Eli would get so mad at people that were telling him the truth he finally said, if you can get sober, so can I. Well, he died with 38 years sober. Imagine that. Now, he was a beautiful man. You know, even though I share some things where he may have had these experiences that caused him to change everything, he means a lot to me because without him, without Don Ristow, today, without Keith, and not all you, I wouldn't be here. So my story carries on from there with some very beautiful things that happen. Two years into my uh, sobriety, I get my license back. For three years, I became an intergroup uh, representative, and I took meetings with other people I grabbed, and I took them to the Reading Detox Center for about three or four years, every single week. So I learned a little bit about service in this program. It's not what we like to do. It's what we must do, what we have to do to stay sober. So my experiences with other people and this fellowship have completely changed my life. Everything wasn't uh, perfect. Um, I was six years sober, and I didn't like my career anymore, and I wanted to do something different. But in that first six years of sobriety, I didn't leave the state of Pennsylvania. I was scared shitless to get on an airplane. I didn't want to go anywhere. I was still too fragile in my sobriety to think I could go do my normal business routine, which was flying around the country, securing customers, doing all that. So I had a, my sponsor taught me to take sobriety on the road. Fortunately, the internet had come about in a pretty good way by then. I could search out AA meetings on the internet. I could, if I went to Louisville or Omaha or Birmingham, Alabama or Portland, Oregon, didn't matter. I could find a meeting. And that's what I did. It really taught me a lot that my first priority is Alcoholics Anonymous. My number one priority is my sobriety. So uh, I spent a number of years <clears throat> floundering a little bit in my career, but some good things happened in 2012. 
I was offered a position here in Arizona, and I found the best group of drunks in the world in Arizona. I was fortunate in Pennsylvania because it's so densely populated. There's a meeting on damn near every corner. It's, there's just so many meetings in Pennsylvania that I had no excuse not to get to a meeting almost every day. And that was my behavior back then. It's my behavior today. In this part of the Arizona, it was a little easier when I lived in Avondale. There were a few more meetings closer by. But I don't use that as an excuse today. I come to meetings in Tonopah, Buckeye, Avondale, and even Phoenix sometimes. I'm not quite like Eric here. Eric's telling me about these great meetings he found in the city. I haven't ventured there yet. But my point is, I stay connected to this program and I stay connected to the people I meet. I have lifelong friends in this program. I'm going to keep them that way. I'm going to keep them as friends as long as I possibly can. And as long as I show up and they show up, as long as I do and practice the principles of this program, where I'm not offending anybody, I'm not making bad choices to step on their anonymity and things like that. All the principles of this program I can practice, and as the word I said earlier, I can put them into action. Action is what really uh, has, has really changed my life. Now, my beliefs, getting back to my beliefs, there's so many areas of the big book that I can refer to where the higher power concept has worked for me. And it worked for me because I hear Byron and other people say, I found a God of my understanding. Nobody works this program like I do, and I don't work it like anybody else. I found a God of my understanding that has worked and it has worked well every single day. My sponsor says, somebody asked him, how, how does AA work? Keith says, fine. <laughs> works just fine. <laughs> Imagine that. It, just wor- it works just fine. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to ask, hey, <clears throat> I have some really good jokes and stuff like that, but we're running out of time. I can't believe I can speak for 40 minutes so quick. Um, if you all want to feel the way I feel tonight, up here at the podium speaking to you, y'all going to get your chance. I am the lifelong chairperson for the speaker <laughs> meetings of the Fresh Start Group of Tonopah. <laughs> I'm going to give you all a chance to speak up here. <laughs> oh man, I tell you what, Shireen, thank you for the introduction I had a number of pages here I was going to refer to out of the big book, but I just couldn't get my head around it. So what I tried to do tonight was just share a little bit of my experience. And I kind of like always at least remembering my last drunk. But more importantly than that last drunk is I remember my first meeting. And I remember what I did after that. I shut my damn mouth and I listened to what you said and I took direction. That was damn near impossible for me to do. You know, I said at a meeting the other night, I said, don't you know who I am? I'm fucking ELT. I'm executive leadership team. Get off of me. What you... No. As I opened this speech tonight, I said, I'm grateful and humble to admit I'm a real alcoholic. I have no reason to gloat. I have no reason to make anything of myself other than what I am today. I'm just another garden variety drunk. I found the solution. 
The solution is in the big book. And you know what? I like where it says somewhere in the big book that uh, the purpose of the big book is to allow us to find a higher power of our understanding. That's really the purpose of the big book. After that, it says, it will be the solution to all of my problems. There's a beautiful page in the big book that says those exact words. If I find the the power of my understanding, it'll be the solution to all my problems. You know, I walk into a meeting almost on a daily basis, never sad, never frowning. It's because it's, it's the joy of you people that bring me here. I don't come here to get a fix. You know, but that's what I receive when I get here. I get fixed almost every time I walk through these doors. I walk out of here a better person than when I came in. I walk out of here a happier person. And with a little bit of effort on my part, I have a little more knowledge about why it works. It works just fine. (laughs) And with that, I think I've consumed most of the time. And with that, I just want to say again, I'm so grateful to be able to be here tonight. I'll keep coming back.